Our text tonight is so spot on for where we're at approaching the Christmas season. Uh, when you're a kid, you think of David, and normally the thing that comes to mind is Goliath. I mean, because that's the story we like to color in, and we get so excited about that as kids, because we're little as kids. Now, some of us, not all of us, but some of us actually grow up and get bigger. Uh, and so, so for some of us, we feel more like the Goliath than the David when we get older. But as kids, we all feel like the David regardless. So that's kind of our story. But then when you talk to adults later, when you ask, what's the story about David? Usually you get to Bathsheba. You know, it's sort of like somewhere down the line, it was David was Goliath as a kid, but then David fell sexually as an adult. And the reason I say that is, is if you've ever had the, the horror of having to sit and watch someone tell their family they've fallen. And I've unfortunately had that situation in a couple. But by God's grace, it's never been somebody directly involved with our, our fellowship. But where I've sat with men who have had to tell their wives that they've been unfaithful or wives have had to tell their husbands they've been unfaithful. And you chase it, you chase this event, you know, this event of the fall, and you don't really see the steps that led up to it. And it's, it's often that you can actually trace it to something that wasn't a sort of a fling for an evening, but it was a series of compromises that took place, walls that had been dropped, fences that had been left open, that uh, somewhere in that gate that had been left open, that somewhere in all of that, we, if we go back and we could retrace our steps, we'd realize we've been inching toward this for quite a while. And the reason I say that is, Chapter 10 is going to be one of David's greatest chapters, but he has little to do with the chapter. But God purposely puts it in here as a chapter about accountability, as a chapter about what it really looks like to be covered and protected uh, in our walks and in the battles we face as Christians. And what we kind of see is chapter 10 is the way to do it right. Chapter 11 is the way to do it wrong. Chapter 10 will be the way that it is set up. And it's such a beautiful thing because it's right in the middle of a battle. And how that battle is, is won, and then how that battle is re-surmised, and, and again, engaged in battle, and how we win completely with, with absolute victory like that, what we would call ourselves more than a conqueror. And then chapter 11, what we're going to see is the terrible failure that takes place because chapter 10 isn't happening in chapter 11. So what God really does in chapters 10 and 11 is He puts them next to each other so we can compare them. Now here... I mean, here we are. You're not going to have a Tuesday night to go to next week. Well, maybe you will somewhere else, but we don't hear. Uh, And and the reason I say that is it's going to be, I mean, families coming in. Some of you, family has come in. Welcome, by the way. And uh, there is this place where there's this temptation to sort of step back from the progress you've made in your walk with Christ. Because maybe your family doesn't know you as this radical, full-on Christian that you are at this moment. And that's going to freak them out. And even if you were raised in a Christian-like home, but now that you're kind of really gung-ho for Jesus, that's a really big difference. And, you know, we've often said that people don't seem to have a problem with you becoming a Christian until you become a real one. Because now all of a sudden you're not going to fall to their schemes and you're not going to sort of bend to all of the things that they think are really cool. It's like Jesus isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. You have a relationship with him. And the reason I say that is, is that... 
people are kind of, I mean, there would be this temptation for us to kind of tone it down and ease up our walk with Jesus just so that we don't upset mom and dad or our old boyfriend or girlfriend or our old friends or whatever the case is. When truth be told, we are never supposed to ease up on our walk with Christ. I challenge you, Jesus is the only thing you cannot overdose on. And I challenge you to prove me wrong. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to take a look at chapter 10 and we're going to sort of dig into it. And it's really cool because there's a battle to be placed here. And we're going to see beautiful victory. And my prayer is that our lives would be ones built on chapter 10 and completely foreign to chapter 11. So, would you pray with me, please? Father God in heaven, I just want to pray right now for every one of us, myself included, that you do a marvelous work here. That you would so profoundly and perfectly minister. That you would speak to each one of us, overcome Every barrier, language, culture, physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, overcome every barrier till all that is left is us and you. So, Lord, I pray tonight that you would do your perfect work. Have your way tonight, we pray. Do a glorious thing. May we have so much fun in your word. And may we tonight really engage the story and allow you to teach us what we need to learn from this historical event that really took place that you still want to apply to our lives today, 3,000 years later. So we commit ourselves to you, and by the power of your Spirit, make it happen, we pray. We commit this time to you, Lord. Equip, challenge, save, exhort. Do all of those things you intend and have your way. Lord, please redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, like any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. And I warn you, in a moment, I may get you all out of your seats to help act this out. Well, not totally act it out. I'm not going to kill any of you. You're not going to kill me. At least that's not my intention. But I want us to kind of get at least a bit of a visual. So I want to warn you for that. So chapter 10, verse 1 starts with this. It happened after this. After what? Well, in the last three chapters, in chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. In chapter 8, David, building on that covenant of an eternal throne, then enlarges the kingdom in essence, starts to seize the land God promised Abraham back in Genesis 15. And then in chapter 9, he shows great kindness, if you remember, to a kid who was broken at the fall, a kid named Mephibosheth, who was his deceased best friend's son, but also happened to be his primary enemy's grandson, Saul's grandson. So in the last three chapters, God says, David, I'm going to build you an enduring house. And then David takes the kingdom to the utmost as much as he can. And then from that, ultimately, then shows kindness. In other words, he does, if you will, outreach in chapter 8 and then inreach in chapter 9 as he blesses then Mephibosheth. So after that, the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Now, let me say a couple of things, and I won't develop every verse to this extent, but it's important to build our ground on this. Ammon, by the way, for what it's worth, is the son of the youngest daughter of Lot's incestuous relationship with Lot. That's Genesis 19. Both of them have children, both of Lot's daughters, after fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. And and you realize that though they kind of escaped out of there, well, it seemed like they kind of took a bit of it with them in their hearts. 
And somewhere in all of that, they think they're the last people on earth. So these girls, in essence, have children from their father. God never endorsed it. And just because it's written in Scripture does not mean God wants you to do it. He's just being honest in his recording of history. But from that, we have in the first, the oldest has a child named Moab, from which the Moabites come. The youngest has a son named Ben-Ami. By the way, Moab means like dad, which is interesting. Uh, and, and when we have here, this Ben-Ami now becomes the father of the, of the Ammonites. Both, by the way, occupy the land of Jordan today on the other side of the Jordan River, for what it's worth. Now, this particular person is, in essence, a perennial enemy of Israel, has been for quite a while now, these Ammonites. But somewhere in all of this, David seems to have had some form of relationship with the man who was the father. We're going to read about him in just a quick moment in verse 2. His name, for what is worth, is Nachash. Nachash, by the way, means snake, serpent. Now, who names their kid that? I know he's born going, or what, but it's definitely not. It's a bad connotation for us. This guy, Nechash, or at least a king from Ammon named Nechash, was a king in 1 Samuel 11. Perhaps you remember the story. He was the guy who the people of Israel said, make a covenant with us. And he said, sure, I'll make a covenant with you, but first let me pluck out all of your right eyeballs. And the people are like, "Mm, can we wait on that for a minute? And then that's when Saul comes to the rescue, in essence, kind of redeems himself as king or at least in essence establishes himself as king. So the, now I don't know if that's the same Nachash or whether that's sort of a common name among the Ammonites. It's hard to tell I haven't met an Ammonite. But I can tell you this. Somewhere down the line, it seems like David had a relationship with a king named Nachash who has a son now who's taking over because dad died. Now, it's important to note that when, a, when there is a regime change in a kingdom, it is its most vulnerable especially when you're talking about a kingdom, because a kingdom is led by a single individual, a monarch. Now, we have a constitutional monarchy here, and what that means is we have a government who basically makes the decisions, and we have a royal who, in essence, stands as a figurehead over our country. That's a very cool thing. So there is, in essence, a representation among the people, but there is also a figurehead. And by the way, I I actually very much love the queen. I love the fact that when there's a Christmas message, it seems like it's always going to be about Jesus. When there's an Easter message, it seems to always be about his resurrection. Hey, I love that. I wish that the presidency of the United States did that. And for that reason, we are more apt to listen to the messages from the queen than we have for the president for at least eight years now. With that said, in a case like this, with their, one day there will be a change of that regime. I'm praying that it is after March, because in March we are supposed to get our citizenship, and we want to stand and say we stand with the Queen, and I want to stand with the Queen. With all due respect, I'm way cool with standing with the Queen. Charlie, I'm a little concerned about. But all of that said, so I'm like, Queen, please, Liz, hold on. Please, Mom, hold on, at least until March, through March. Well, that said. But when there is a king ruling things, And he is really the one in charge. He's also the one who leads the army. He's also the commander-in-chief. He's also the one, in essence, who's supposed to be the greatest fighter. He's also the one who's the representation of the country, the representative of the country. So when that guy dies and all government basically focuses and pinpoints to him, well, then the whole nation has to reassess everything. And that makes the kingdom the most vulnerable. So when a king dies, even if his son's going to take his place, he still doesn't know how to rule things like dad did. And if you attack at a moment like that, that kid may not know how to gather the army and fight back. 
The reason I say that is when a kingdom changes like that, it will always be its most vulnerable. And that seems to be the setting here in this. Because what they're missing is the relationship David seemed to have with the father. So David says in verse 2, I will show kindness to Hanun. Remember, that's the son. His name means graced or favored. The son of Nechash. As his father showed kindness to me, which we have no record of in Scripture what that kindness was. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now, think about how sweet this is. David, he kind of looks and he goes, oh, man, that must be horrible. The father has died over there. You know, the son is taking the place. Hey, let's send a few guys over there with some flowers and some chocolates, you know, and kind of maybe a teddy bear or something, just something to kind of comfort the guys a little bit and just go, hey, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad, but I just really want you to know we are friends. And so these guys kind of come there with this comfort, whatever that is, some form of statement. But the princes in verse 3. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks and sent them away. Hey, this is in scripture. Here it is right here. Now, I'd like you to consider the situation. These guys have come with the purest of intents. They've come with the, in essence, to administer comfort to a son who's lost his dad. And I like this about David. Please don't miss. David doesn't just see this guy as a political figure. He sees him like a human being. It's one thing for a guy to sort of lose the guy in office and to step up for that, you would say congratulations. But it's an entirely different thing for someone to lose their dad. And David looks and he sees with compassion that this guy has lost his father. And he looks and he goes, man, I just want you to know I'm really sorry and I'm grieving with you. But the princes, which, by the way, I remind you, if they're princes, what relationship would they be to this guy Hanun? They'd be his brothers. These are the guys who, by the way, didn't get to be king. They could sing that song, just can't wait to be king all they want. They can wait all they want because they're not going to be king. Chanun is. And they kind of look and now they're going to stew up a suspicion. And they're like, oh, do you really think this is the case? And I want to warn you. When a person constantly seems to see things from an angle, you have to wonder why they're seeing things at that angle. And often it's because it's the condition of their own heart. The Bible says to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, nothing is pure. And God just makes clear. You ever have that kind of person, no matter what you say, it becomes sort of a sexual innuendo to them, even though you ask them how they were or something, and you're like, I totally didn't mean that, because that's where they're coming from. Well, that's kind of the idea here. Only these guys are, in essence, paranoid about somebody attacking the kingdom. And what they are doing is they're mistaking David, who is a friend for them at the moment, and they're mistaking him. For an enemy. Now, when you go out and you share Jesus with people, you do know that that's going to happen, right? You know that there are people that are going to go out there and though you're sharing Jesus with them, you recognize that they look and they see Jesus as some kind of great enemy instead of the lover of their souls. And to me, I just don't get that. But their response to these guys, well, which one of you wants to be a servant to David at a moment like this? They don't shave their beards. They shave half their beards. So, Daniel, come up here for a moment and let's just show them what that looks like. No, I'm just kidding. You can stand up. It'd be kind of fun, though, wouldn't it, for a moment? But it's, understand, 
If somebody shaves half your beard, it's clearly, by the way, for what it's worth, a message of guilt and shame. But to actually show nakedness is clearly a point of shame. For instance, in Isaiah 47, 3, it says, Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. They're paralleling them. Same thing will happen, by the way, Saul speaks this to his son, Jonathan, Mephibosheth's dad, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. And in Nahum, verse 3, 5. And then, or chapter 3, verse 5. And then I believe in Revelation 3, 8. In all cases, when God speaks about nakedness, he doesn't speak about it being something sexy. He speaks about it being something shameful. Public nakedness in the sight of God is something to be ashamed of. So when somebody, in essence, turns your mumu into a halter top, they've done so to shame you. When someone shaves off half of your beard, They've shamed you and says, in essence, they've, they've treated you shamefully. Interesting, by the way, because both of those things, if you think about it, will be paid for at the cross. My Savior hung naked on a cross. We don't like to put that. Of course, you know, you walk into a Catholic church, you definitely don't want to see anyone hanging naked on a cross. But that's the way Jesus would have hung because the Romans wanted to shame any person that was being punished that way. They knew of it as an act of shame. But in Isaiah 50, verse 6, it also tells us that when speaking of the prophecy of Jesus, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. Now, Daniel, have you ever had anyone pull out hairs on your beard? Would anyone like to see us pull one out just to see how painful it is? Okay, you guys are sick. We should never do that to a brother. Anyways, I can't believe you even thought of it. Anyways, but yeah, it's. I mean, the point is that it is extremely painful. I used to have a coach back in that uh, coach of American football, and he used to pull chest hairs and beard hairs if he could. And boy, I tell you, big, very scary, burly men will cry if you pull enough of them out. And anyways, for what it's worth, the whole idea of it is imagine David sends a couple guys. So let's say let's kind of play this out for a second. So here we are. We're in England. And all of a sudden we find out that there is a king in Italy. And that king in Italy has a son. And somehow in all of that, we kind of are, are good friends with the king. The king has passed away. And so we send a delegation of guys. And we're like, hey, we just want you to know we're really, really sorry. We're so sorry. We really just want you to be comforted. And they come back stark naked and half their body is shaved. You know, I mean, today we probably got you'd be more than that. I mean, today, how would we shame someone like that? We'd take a permanent marker and write idiot on, you know, on the top here. We'd, you know, you do those kind of things where the guy, obviously, everyone's going to make fun of him. A hundred years ago, we would tar and feather them. Same idea. But what's clear is I don't think David expected any of this. So David kind of sends these guys just kind of like, hey, you just want you to know I'm sorry. And then these guys show up. Now, notice, by the way, in verse five, because it tells us something about David. It says when David, when they told David, what did they tell David? That these guys had been walking around now with their clothes cut off at the buttocks and their feet, their beards half shaved. He sent to meet them because they were greatly ashamed. Did you notice, by the way, David actually met them at their shame? He didn't tell them, now go clean up, get yourself some new clothes and... You know, get that beard growing again, and then you can see me. Do you realize every other religion in the world, that's kind of how it's played out? We're there in our shame and in our guilt and in our filth. And it's like, if you could just clean yourself up and make yourself better, maybe then the king will give you audience. And what we really see in Scripture is completely the opposite. 
even David, who God has already promised the Messiah would come through. He sees men who have been shamed by the world. If you will, you think about it, shamed by the son of a serpent. And as a result of that, he met them at their shame. And he said then, well, wait in Jericho until your beards have grown, and then you can go. And so the beautiful part is, he, in essence, the king puts them up and gives them a place to recover. I do like this. He, I mean, he didn't exile them or banish them until this was the case, but he actually gave them a place to stay. He tells them, wait here now. Now, now we've got a problem because the people of Ammon realize they've made kind of a, uh, they've kind of made this thing a real big mess. Verse six. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians from Betachrechov and from the Syrians of Zoba, twenty thousand foot soldiers, and the king of Maaka, one thousand men, and from Ishtov. 12,000 men. Can anyone do the math? How many men is that that are mercenaries? Excellent. 33,000 men. 20,000 footmen, 1,000 from the king of Ma'aka, and 12,000 from Ishtof. Tov. Very good. There are 33,000 hired guns besides the people of Ammon. David heard of it. He sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Betrachov, Ishtov, and Ma'aka were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him and before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best, put them in battle array against the Syrians. The rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might send them in battle array against the people of Ammon. You've got the story now, and we'll play it out here in a moment. But what we're going to see is, look at verse 11 and 12, and then we'll kind of develop this. Then he, that's Joab, says, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And there is the perfect example of accountability. So we need to play this out for a second. Ammon is an area. It's in the area of northern Jordan. And so in the area of northern Jordan, there's a place with a gate, a city, if you will, with a gate. So there are the people of Ammon, and they're, they know now that David's going to attack. They have shamed his servants, and in shaming their servants, David, in response to those servants, to honor the servants. David could have just gone, well, that was really funny, ha, 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 let's try again. But what David does is he recognizes if he's going to honor his servants, then he's going to have to go, and he's going to have to go to battle. So in respect of these men who have been shamed, because he calls them his own, he goes to battle. But notice, David doesn't fight in this battle yet. He sends his commander, his name is Yaav. Can you say Yaav? Yaav means, for what it's worth, Father God. Great name. He's got a brother. His brother's name, according to this, is Abishai. Can you say Abishai? Abba means father or daddy. Bishai means gift. It means the father's gift. So you have these two guys. Father God. And the Father's gift. They're leading the battle. So do this. I need you all up out of your seats for a moment. Come here for just a moment, if you would, please. You didn't realize you're going to do this, right? And this is where filming is going to become really complicated. Okay. Now, this is what I need. 
I'm going to need some Ammonites, and I'm going to need some mercenaries. So stop right there. You can be the Ammonites. And that is the official Ammonite couch. So go ahead and take yourself at that Ammonite couch for a second. You guys are going to be the mercenaries. You are the Syrians. And by the way, for what it's worth, listen, there's four different groups. So here we go. Betrechov. It means house on the street, or if you will, common house, or house of the common. That's you. Not you in real life, but for what it's worth, okay? Now, Zoba, that's you then. Now, Zoba means station. In other words, it means kind of stuck in a rut. This is just kind of who I am. This is who I'm going to always be. That's kind of the idea. So you have ordinary house, if you will. And then you have, this is just who I'm always going to be. And then you have Ma'aka. Daniel, you get to be Ma'aka. Ma'aka means depression. Uh, And here's the irony. Angel, the one girl of the group, you get to be Ishtov. Ish means man. Tov means good. You mean, you actually mean good men. Ironic. Good men. You want to find a good man, it's, it's a woman. Anyways, you girls, maybe you love that. Okay, so now, now don't miss this. These are the ones that are hired because they recognize David's going to fight this. Does that make sense? So what you have is, don't miss this. You have ordinary house. You have, you know, this is who I'm always going to be. You have depression and what it would be like to be a good person. Or I'm a good person. Do you get that? And they, it's, it's, what it tells us is, is that when David, they're, they're coming to fight. And as they're coming to fight, the Ammonites have set themselves in battle array. But where do you think you set yourselves in battle array? Yeah, at the front of the gate. Because remember, David's going to come at you here, right? So here you go. So gather together here. You're guarding the gate. Gather yourself. Come on. Be ready for that. So there you go, right? So be in battle. Look at, look at who was ready. Right? So there you go. Right. Are you with me so far? But it tells us that the Syrians, now who are the Syrians? That's the mercenaries, are hiding their position in the field. Where do you think the field is? The field is over here. So you guys come on over here for a second. Now what you realize has happened is, is that they have set an ambush. See, what will happen is, because you guys are in the north, Joab's going to come with his men, and he's going to come with his men, and he's going to come at you here and be like, ah, and what he doesn't know is, the mercenaries are going to come from behind and go, yeah, 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 yeah. You get it? Just kind of like that. Now, I remind you, this is Ammon, right? That's it. And over here is the mercenaries from Syria. Now, you remember, what what do your names mean? Ordinary house. Always like this. Always like this. <laughs> you're doing a good job. Good man. Now, don't miss this. Okay, you ready? So what happens is, I'm gonna. Now you need to take one more person. Can I take that? Yeah. Can I borrow you? Yay! Because I figured it's just me. Kind of okay. So now here we are. Now, let's just say, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be Joab, or do you want to be Abishai? Anyone. Anyone? <laughs> okay, great. I'll tell you what. You can be Joab. Because Joab. you're the older one. Okay. You're the wiser one. <laughs> okay. Now, Joab, is, he's looking. We're looking at the battle. And as we look at the battle, he realizes the battle's on two fronts. Mm-hmm. The battle is in front of us, because remember, that's where we want to go. And the battle is behind us. 
And remember, do you remember what Joab means? Or Joab means? Father God. Yes, I find. All right. Now, and, and I'll be then Abishai, which means the Father's gift. And what he says is, okay, well, it looks like the battle's on two fronts. So this is what we need to do. We need to go and take on, we need to take on both sides at the same time. Does that make sense? Now, let me ask you, who was taking on the Ammonites? Does anyone know? Is it Joab or is it Abishai? Well, let me ask you, who do you think are the best fighters of this group? Do you think it's the Ammonites or do you think it's the mercenaries? You're right. Those are the better fighters because they're trained. That's what they do for a living. They're professional. They're professional fighters. Like, for instance, depression. Obviously, they're just a good fighter, right? Okay. Does that make sense? So, Joab, being the experienced commander, where do you think he's going to go? Is he going to go after you or is he going to go after them? He's going to go after them. Does that make sense? So, what he's going to say is we're going to split up and this is the deal. You, Abishai, Father's gift, take some mighty men, and you're going, is this forward or backwards? Forward. Forward. Excellent. Meanwhile, Joab, Father God, takes care of what is behind. Did you get it? So here's accountability. Because you realize the battle's on two fronts. On one side, we, we have the battle of our past. What's behind us. And what's behind us can catch up with us. But guess who takes care of that? Father God. The Father says, I got that covered. Because that's the biggest battle. I'll take care of that one. So let me ask you, according to Scripture, who is the Father's gift? Jesus. What's that? What's that? But we know Jesus, like David would play that role. But Jesus himself said that I will pray and the Father will give you Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. And you realize the Holy Spirit's job is to take you forward. He's the one who's going to take where you were and move you forward. But when I look backwards, well, how did the Father handle the past? Jesus. That's how he handled it. But here's the deal this Christmas, beloved. This is what you got to battle. Are you ready? Here are the things we can go back to. First of all, what was this one? Ordinary, Ordinary house. Just a house anywhere. You all of a sudden, you know, I'm just another person. I might as well just blend in with my old drinking buddies. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just, look at, you are amazing. You are so amazing that God sent his son to die for you to get you. How important do you think you are to God? Stop thinking you're ordinary. And maybe when you go and it's Christmas and you feel ordinary, I'm just, oh, there's, there's the really important people and there's me. Not in the household of God. But there's not just this in your past. What's this one? Yeah, it's kind of, I'm always just going to be this. You know, this is just, this is my station. This is my place in life. I was born this way. This is just who I'm going to be. No, let me tell you what. You were reborn. And when you were reborn, you were recreated to be a whole new thing. And the thing you're going to be is infinitely better than what you've been. Does that make sense? But you know, easy just to go back to this. Because all of a sudden, especially if like you go and you're visiting and you're back in your old room where you used to be, what you used to think, and with your old posters that you haven't seen in three years, you're like, oh, did I ever like those guys? You know, whatever. And then you, you realize, you're like, you just feel like you were that again. But wait a minute, what else is in your past? Depression. 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 <laughs> Daniel. Daniel's in your past. 
did. You were, I didn't line you up. You just shoot on your own. <laughs> and somewhere down the line, there's this part where you just get self-consumed, and it becomes a black hole. All depression is, is, a, is being consumed with yourself to the point where you just start giving in. Okay, but, but what about good man? How does that work? Because that becomes the problem that keeps us from Jesus. I'm a good man. Just a good person. And what happens? I'll just do more good things. Does that make sense? And this is what's going to be the challenge over our Christmas forever. Because what's going to happen is, you might want to go back to that. But when you want to go back to that, who do you go to? You go to the Father. And you say, Father, remind me, that's not who I am anymore. By the blood of Jesus, that's not who I am. Amen. So, the Father says, I've got this back thing handled. Now, I want to remind you, they are trained fighters. In just the same way, the things in your past are trained to take you down. Because they've already won before. So they kind of already know what weaknesses you may have, so to speak. But the good news is, you're not that person anymore. The Father took them down. Does that make sense? So in that, here's the deal. First of all, we need to recognize, in our own life, there's two battles. There's the battle to not go back. But the battle to not go back, who do I hand it over to? I hand it over to the Father. But the battle to step forward, well, that's another one we can forget. That's the Holy Spirit's job. As he starts ripping out of us the things we used to love that were bad and replacing them with a desire for things like coming to church on a Tuesday night. How weird is that? You know, not doing the things you used to, but instead wanting to be sober and pure. And I mean, these are crazy thoughts as far as the world's concerned. But to take you forward, and who's going to do that? The Spirit of God's going to do that. It's His job. Does that make sense? Now, here's the deal, though. In the middle of this battle, there's a conversation with these two guys. And this is what they say. Hey, if the past gets too much, that was behind gets too much, call for help. If the future gets too much for me, I'm calling you for help. And that's exactly what real accountability needs to be. Accountability isn't just, hey, if I do something bad, can I tell you? I mean, how horrible is that? Then what happens? Yeah, well, how do you help someone that's already done it? You help them not do it again, and then they're like, don't tell anyone, let's keep it a secret. That's not accountability. Real accountability you submit to. That's the problem. We love accountability when we're doing well, because all that is is a cheerleader. Yeah, you're doing great. Good, you're a good quantum. But when you really need accountability, you really don't want accountability. Let's be honest. So you say, hey, you know what? My prayer is tonight, you'll get on your face and you'll ask God, God, give me someone or someones that can really say, how are you doing on the past and how are you doing on the future? Because let's face it, if we really want to succeed the way God has called us to in the future, we can't be who we are today to have victory tomorrow. We have to be tomorrow's victory to win tomorrow's victory. Does that make sense? Okay, you guys, go ahead and have a seat. Thank you very much. Well done, Ammonites. Well done, Depression. Well done, the rest of you mercenaries. Again, verse 11. Joab says, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. If the people of Ammon are too strong for you, 
then I will come and help you. Notice it says, it doesn't say, if the people are too much for me, then I'm going to get strong enough to leave. Look at, if I'm getting overwhelmed, I need you to come to where I'm at and help me. But David did that even with these men in their shame, if I, remind, if I can remind you. So be of good courage. And let us be strong for our people, for the cities of our God. Look at one of the things you need to recognize is that when a Christian falls, to whatever degree a Christian falls, it hurts other Christians. I mean, we know that it hurts the heart of God. We just don't realize how many people can get caught up in the vortex of our sin. Especially when we try to include them in some sick way. It was never the way God intended. Well, in this it says, so look at, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and all the people who were with him drew near the battle against the Syrians. Now, Joab, I remind you, so Nesto here, he's taking on, that's what's behind, the Syrians. And it says, and so, so it says, uh, against the Syrians, and they fled before him. Notice, by the way, there was no great battle. The moment that Joab sets foot, because he's large and in charge, the, the Syrians flee like little girls. And they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled. Now, don't miss this. What gets handled first, the future or the past? The past. Excellent. That's what gets nailed first. Because how do we move forward if we're still living there? How do you drive forward when you're staring over your shoulder? He's like, let's deal with this. That is the past. And that is going to flee. You don't even have to gauge the battle. Let the father deal with it. Daddy, I leave this in your hands. I don't want to be this guy anymore. I, I don't want to be this depressed thing. I don't want to be this thing that feels like I'm always just going to be this. I know the sin I've been dealing with for however long, but I don't want to, I just, I feel like I'm always going to be this, but you got to handle that. I'm not that person anymore and I need to see myself different. I'm not an ordinary person. I'm holy unto you. And I'm not going to try to tell you that I'm a good person. I'm a person that needs your saving. And Father, deal with my past. Be the Lord of my past. And Spirit, lead me forward. Lead me forward. But I recognize this. When the past gets dealt with, the future becomes no problem at all. Well, with that in mind, so it says, the Ammonites saw that Syria were fleeing. They also fled. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Now the Syrians, which ones are the Syrians? The past or the future? The past. Don't miss that. The Syrians, when they had been, when they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Guess what? One victory against the past often isn't enough. So then they go and they ask for help. So they gather together, and verse 16 says, Then Hadadezer, try the name Hadadezer. Hadadezer, by the way, Hadadezer, Ezer means help. Hadad would be like there was a foreign god, like Hadad is my help, but it also means, in essence, vain honor. In other words, me glorifying myself. Guess who steps in to help your past? The me first, I deserve to be honored person. Isn't that the next step? Because somewhere, you know what will happen in a moment like this, you're starting to see victory and then someone offends you. You're like, hey, who do you think you are? I am entitled to be treated better than that. 
Don't you realize who I am? I'm special. I'm a man of God. I mean, I've been listening to the service, and that's what it's been saying, right? Yes, you are special. But by the moment you start getting it to focus on you, you're already starting to take yourself down. So all of a sudden, you have this sort of personal honor to help you. If you will, we might say entitlement. He steps in, and he grabs more Syrians. He grabs more of the past that is beyond the river. Now, when you think about a river in Scripture up to this point, what rivers do you think of? The Jordan. That's the, that's the river that seems to be the most prevalent. Now, obviously, this particular river will be the Euphrates. But I can't help but think in Israel's history, the Jordan was the place where they left the land of the wilderness to enter into the promised land. So how does that work for me or you? You know what happens in a moment like this? is that this personal me-first honor thing reminds me of who I was before I was saved and tries to make it look attractive. Don't you remember what it was like before you were saved? How you could do whatever you wanted? Remember how you were the cool thing? Let's just be honest. You'll never be 13 again. No matter how awesome you thought you were at 13, even if you're saved and try to go back to be 13, you still can't be 13 because you're not 13. But it is amazing how you can look at a really bad situation and make it romantic and then wish you were there again. And now Hadadezer is joined with people beyond the river and they came to a place called Halam. Try this, Halam. Halam, by the way, means stronghold. Do you realize this is, in my life, I'll be honest, I'll be transparent to say this is in my life, but I imagine it probably is in yours too. A stronghold is this issue that I have this nasty habit of trying to put myself first. Well, they gather together at the stronghold. It makes sense to me. And now we meet a person, and I love this, who is the commander of this new army. And his name is Shavach. Try this, Shavach. Shavach, by the way, comes from the root word which means to expand or... You ready for this? Pause for effect. Corpse. And I can't help but I go, oh my goodness, the dead man is leading this battle. Of course the dead man's leading this battle. Because the dead man was the person that Jesus let die when I said yes to him. And here I am trying to resurrect that dead guy and try to make him look like he's not dead and he's not stinky and he's not rotting and he doesn't smell bad. He's dead. How is, I mean, dead things don't look good. I mean, there, there's a reason why people have to do all the things they can and then give you a time limit on when you can go visit this person after they've passed away because no matter how much makeup you put on them, sooner or later, they're just not going to look so good. And the Bible tells us in the book of Romans to render or consider or reckon the old man dead. Stop thinking that guy's alive. There's no zombies in this. He's dead. Consider him dead. Leave him dead and go forward. But what happened is, is the Syrians don't like losing. So as a result of that, there's a battle that needs to take place. And they gather and they gather beyond the river. They go way beyond all of that. And they gather with a guy that means my personal entitlement, my vain glory as a hope or as a help. And they go and they take the commander whose name is Corpse to expand, if you will. And that guy says, we're going to lead this back in and we're going to win. 
Beloved, you are not just a winner. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And if you're more than a conqueror, and the reason is the only thing you have to fight is a dead man. How do you, how do you lose that? Unless he's like really big and he's on top of you. But you get the idea. But guess what happens when the, the corpse jumps in? Guess what happens when beyond the river jumps in? Guess who else jumps in? The king does. Up to this point, the father has jumped in to handle the past. The spirit, if you will, the father's gift has jumped in to take you to the future. But now you're stuck in this middle place, and now the past is coming full force. And when the past comes full force, guess who steps in? The king does. And it tells us here then in verse 17. So when it was told David, he got, he, he, he gathered not just the mighty men, he gathered all Israel. And I want you to realize that David held no punches. David didn't just go, well, let's just kind of go teach him a, le- a lesson. David, when he says, we are going to annihilate this thing once and for, God, once and for all, Every man to his station, every man to his battle armor, because we were all going after this thing. When David went after them, he went after them with all the force he had, because he is not going to let Israel fall to this to this army. Praise God for such a king. But guess where he went? He crossed the Jordan. Notice where he crossed. He crossed the Jordan. And he came... Chalam. Chalam, I remind you, was the stronghold. In this story, David has gone two places. He has gone to the place where the men were of shame. There's a bit of irony, by the way, because the men were cut off at the buttocks in the particular place. Jericho, Jericho means it's moon. Well, anyways, it's kind of a weird thing. Cut at the buttocks, it's moon. Anyways, but here David meets men at their shame, and now David meets them at the stronghold. Did you notice that? David went to the shame, the place of shame, and then David went after that to the place of the stronghold. And it says then that he got all Israel, went over the Jordan, came to Chalam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with them. Now notice, by the way, this for David's now moving forward. There's no past in this one at this moment because it's just, it's in, the, it's in the present now. And so David now doesn't wait for them to come at him. He doesn't wait for them to sneak up from behind. David isn't going to wait for the battle to come to him. At this point, it's personal, and he's going after it, and he goes right where they're at. They don't even have a chance. Don't miss this. They don't have a chance to deploy their troops. They're still gathered in the stronghold. What do you think they're doing there? They're kind of there with their drawing boards and going, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to take you guys and we're going to go over this way and you guys are going to go from this side. And now they're in the middle of their meeting, you know, with their PowerPoint presentation and their felt boards and all of that. David comes in and they just come in from all sides. I love the fact that David doesn't even allow this army to get at him. David takes the battle right to them. So... What's the result of that? Verse 18, Then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers. That would be tank men, by the way, today. And 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians. And struck Shobach, the commander of their army. Guess what? Should have saw it coming. Corpse died there. Uh, It says who died there. And then notice the result in our last verse. When all the kings who were servants of this vainglory and personal entitlement, when all of those people who served that king saw that the king was defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid 
to help the people of Ammon anymore. Guess how it ends? Even the allies of Hedadezer were no longer enemies of Israel. Even the mercenaries that came to attack from behind to ambush Israel are no longer a threat. But what did it take for that to happen? All three men were involved in the fight. The king handling the present, the father handling the past, and the spirit handling the the future. All in conjunction here. The end result, no more mercenaries. The stronghold is defeated. The Syrians are gone. Ammon is defeated in all of this because men are like, look at, let's deal with this. Is our, how is my present? What's your future looking like? Let's hand that over to the Spirit. How's your past looking? Let's hand that over to the Father. And if this were chapter 11, chapter 11 would look very different. Sad to say, when we get to the new year, we're going to see a man fall. We're going to see a man fall because guess what he doesn't have? He doesn't have accountability. It tells us it is the time when kings go to battle. God makes special mention. It doesn't just say it's spring, it's fight time. It's the time when the kings go to battle. But guess who's not in the battle? The king. Do you see the problem with that? David was always safer on the battlefield with the Lord than he ever was in the palace by himself. And let me just say, the reason that David falls is because he has nobody to hold him accountable when he's in that palace. Everyone there will be a yes man, and that's not accountability. I can see why David would say, and we'll talk about that more in in 2017, because against you and you alone have I sinned. It isn't because David had not sinned only against God. He was the only one who was going to willing. He was, God was the only one willing to call it a sin still. By this point, all of his servants wouldn't call it a sin. They couldn't. They'd be killed. But Shiva wasn't going to call it a sin. But God never changed his mind. So when David said, against you and you alone have, have I sinned, that was not because he hadn't hurt other people. He's going, against you and you alone, you were the only one who still said this was wrong. Here in this chapter now, as we prepare for Christmas, you realize in less than a week, we are going to actually sit at our tables with our families, whatever that looks like. Break into the fatted, whatever the thing is that you break into. And you'll enjoy your family traditions and you'll, you know, we may sing our songs or do whatever the things are. Watch our It's a Wonderful Life or It's a Mediocre Life or whatever it is you may want to watch that night or whatever the case. But over the next week, my challenge to you is get a couple guys in your life that can say, can you hold me accountable to both areas so that I don't go back to who I was but I don't stay who I am today, tomorrow. But that I let God continue to change me. Hey, the radical changes God's made in my life make me so radically different from the person that I knew when I first met him. But I first met him in 1984. Do you realize that's 32 years ago? That's crazy. And if I, but the thing is, the changes God made in the first decade were so radical but I don't want to just tell you about the things God did 20 years ago. I want to tell you how God's changing me today. And for every day that I breathe on this planet, he's going to make me more like him. There's the beauty. So as we go to prayer, let me say this first of all. 
as we call on the name of Christ and we, believe, and we call ourselves believers, can we embrace as a family people that will challenge us to not run back to who we were and not stay who we are tomorrow, but to let God take us forward? The Father has paid not just for all of your past, but the sins of its entirety by sending the King to meet you at your shame. That's the whole point of the cross. But I remind you, Jesus' death is half the gospel. Jesus died for you to pay for your sins, but he rose again to be your Lord. And we need to let him be our Lord. We need to let him lead us forward. And he'll do that through his spirit. He'll do that in his word. And as he puts you around other people who love him, what you're going to find is people are going to challenge us to say, all right, let's break camp and move forward. So as we go to prayer tonight, Oh, let's let God work on us and do that. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we recognize in this chapter there's so much to digest. But we do know this, Lord, that without your help, we are a slave to our past. But you have annihilated our past. Our past flees before you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross, not just to pay for the sins of my past, but all of the sins of my life. But when I look back at the person I was, I am reminded that that man is a dead man and that corpse is never to gather an army to try to fight and take me back there. I don't belong there anymore. And that's why you tell me it's a Christian walk, not just a Christian stance. So, Lord, may we leave what is behind and embrace that which is forward. May we set our mind on things above, not things of the earth, because we died and our life is hidden now with you. And when you, Jesus, our life appears, we'll appear with you in glory. We confess to you there are things that can be romanticized that we could look back at our past and even look at with longing. But, Lord, slaughter that in our hearts so that we don't look back at those things and want them. And I just want to pray specifically today against those, Lord, who just feel like they're ordinary and that you haven't called them to anything to change the world. Rip them out of that past. For those who feel like they'll always be who they've been, rip them out of that past. For those engulfed in some form of depression or oppression, rip them out of that past. For those who are trying to be a good person instead of be with you, Rip them out of that past. And when it all sort of foils down to or boils down to this sort of self-entitled personal honor, rip us out of that past. Yank down that stronghold and deliver us. Be the Lord of our past. We're just not that person because not only whoever came to you became a new creation, but whoever is in you is a new creation. Remind us of that. But Lord, it's not just about not going backwards. It's about moving forward. And Lord, I know that every day your Holy Spirit conforms me more and more into the likeness of Jesus, Father. And that I'm not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of my mind. That I'm to shed the old man and to put on the new that is created in your image. And I pray, Lord, 
that you, by the power of your spirit, would purge from me all of the filth and nastiness that in any way reeks of the past. That I today, here in this room, could find myself embracing the future with victory and with hope. And Jesus, remind me that you are the one that every breath I breathe in the current that will always be present with me, you are ever present in my ever present help in my time of need. And that I can just look at this moment and enjoy you knowing that the Father has conquered my past and the Spirit will lead me forward. And Jesus, I just want to walk with you through the whole journey. Thank you for meeting me at my shame, dying on the cross and paying for it. Thank you for raising again to lead me away from that shame and to restore me to a place of honor with you. So now lead me forward, I pray, and let this be the most amazing Christmas ever because of it. And I commit myself afresh and anew to you and ask, Lord, now, let tomorrow, let the tomorrow me be so much better than the today me. And let that be the trajectory from this point forward. In Jesus' name. Amen.